hello and welcome to the show where we are going to challenge you to think well about our culture and what the Bible has to say as far as our cultural engagement. What does scripture say and how does it inform the way that we engage culture? I've read this great book, Cultural Intelligence, by my guest, Dr. Daryl Bach, and this is going to be the topic today of our conversation. How do we have cultural intelligence? Dr. Daryl Bach is the... Let me get this right. Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and the Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written many books as well as the kind of go-to commentaries on Luke and Acts, which my church used as we talk through Luke. And so it is a privilege and honor here to be talking with you, Dr. Bach, today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, glad to be with you, Ryan. Absolutely. This is a conversation I love having. As I said, this is a book I loved reading. I think it is so timely. And as, as you said before, at least timely for the next week, right? This idea of how yeah, do we engage the right. culture well. <laughs> but as we're talking about this, this goes back to what scripture says. There's a lot that works into uh, our cultural engagement that we can learn from scripture, as well as this book works through Paul and, and the example that he said. And so maybe as we kind of start off, um, you know, how is maybe what we are going to talk about today different than maybe other people who have written books on how to engage cultural topics, how to engage issues? What makes this maybe different? This is a meta book. Uh, it's a book that comes alongside and asks, how do I walk into public space no matter what the issue is? Most cultural engagement books go issue by issue. In fact, I wrote a book four years ago called How Would Jesus Vote that was basically that kind of a book. If I were doing it today, I'd have written the books in the reverse order. Um, hmm. Because I, I think most Christians don't think about what is it that I as a Christian want to accomplish in the public space as I engage, no matter what the issue is, particularly if it's a controversial issue. Right. And so thinking through our general approach to this space, particularly with people who aren't in the same um, faith space that we are, or maybe aren't even in a faith space at all. Um, in our diverse culture, you're going to meet a lot of people. I like to say, um, Christians are used to saying the Bible says, well, if you meet an agnostic or an atheist, then you begin the sentence with the Bible says, you need to realize they're going to have trouble with both the words in that sentence. Right. And so, um, so how do you communicate with someone in which that which you value isn't valued by them? And how do you how do you bridge that gap? Those kinds of questions. So it's it's that that I'm dealing with. The other thing that I'm dealing with is I really deeply believe that the culture war that the church has been fighting has been fought in a way that's not mission focused appropriately. We've made people the enemy rather than the goal. Yeah. And I think the Great Commission says people are the goal. And so thinking through how we ought to engage, particularly with people who think differently than we are, how we ought to see them. Uh, is very, very important. And so I think our way of doing culture war has actually not only damaged, not only damaged our relationship with people who we hope to bring to the gospel, but it's also, I think, done damage internally in the church. Yeah. And so it's an attempt to correct that misdirection. It isn't the people aren't well motivated who yeah. want to fight the culture war, but the way they're going about it, I don't think is biblically aligned. Yeah, and I think I think we see a lot of that, and that is why I want to have this conversation. Is again, it's it's. I think we have basic principles. Would you maybe most people would be like, oh yeah, the Bible says we need to love people and we need to treat people well, but there's there's more of a foundation, or at least there's more of an application that we need to draw from Scripture and apply it to the way that we're having those conversations. That's right, and and so the one of the chapters goes through 
six core passages that really form a framework for how to have a theology of cultural engagement, which I don't think we have in the church. And uh, almost all of those passages talk about engaging with people with respect, with gentleness. Uh, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Always be gracious. You know, all of the tonal part of how we engage in the midst of a disagreement is as important as being right in the midst of the conversations that we're having. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so true. I think there's a lot of ways in which we may not be explicitly saying it, but we kind of do treat others as kind of the enemy or the opposition that we need to destroy. And sometimes it actually comes out explicitly. So just two weeks ago, uh, I was on a mission trip or a, a trip out to Utah where we were leading a group of students have conversations with Mormons. And I sat down, I knocked on the door of a, a one Mormon couple who's in this BYU student housing. We sat down in the, com in the living room, we're having a conversation. And when she found out I was not LDS, she goes, wait, you're not LDS? And I said, no. She goes, you're my enemy. <laughs> and uh, no, she was kind of joking about it. We ended up having a really good about 45 minute long conversation. But I found it interesting that just that's what comes out is, oh, you're on the other side. It's an enemy. Even if it's an enemy we're willing to talk about, we're on different sides here. Um, what would be maybe, a, you know, as we kind of summarize and we're starting to work through some of these, instead of seeing people as the enemy, how, how should we go about just viewing the person we're having a conversation with? I tell people that if you understand from Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces, a spiritual battle, and you recognize that what Satan's presence in the world is, is that he, he's in the midst of deceiving people. And then, and then he works incognito, that most people don't even recognize that he's there. That means that the person that you're engaging with who doesn't see a place for God and doesn't see um, anything about the faith being relevant, is actually trapped in a, in, a, in a spiritual cage, if I can put it that way. Um, and it's one thing to rescue someone who's been kidnapped and they realize they're in danger. It's yeah. another thing to try and rescue someone who's lost but has no clue that there's a problem. And, and so just understanding that, then the second element of thinking through this is when you engage with someone who's in that position, who's in one sense back is turned to God, you need to remember that when God drew you to himself, your back was turned to him as well. Yeah. And so you're, you're reaching out and modeling the way in which God took the initiative with you when your back was turned. That's, that's a first Peter three passage, you know, that Christ died for sin. The reason we engage to give it offense for the hope that's in us, but with gentleness and respect is because Christ died for sin to lead people to God on the one hand. And then it says, and to lead you to God, personalizing it and saying, you need to remember where you were when God reached out and touched you. So we're modeling something that shows the way God engaged with us when we weren't interested in engaging with him. Yeah. And, so what would you, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. What would you say then, you know, to the person I've heard, I've received comments like this, where it's like, well, but this is how the culture fights the battle. This is how the world fights. And so we got to fight that battle and we got to approach it in this way, or, or they don't deserve the respect and dignity because of, of what they're doing. When we fight the way the world does, we make ourselves another special interest group and we're not another special interest group. Hmm. Uh, we are, uh, we're supposed to be different. What makes us different is not that we fight the way the world does. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he didn't say, look, don't just love those who love you. Okay, the world can do that. Sinners can do that. The way you show your distinctiveness is the way you love your enemy. So 
It isn't, it isn't just we're supposed to love all people. What makes us distinctive is we love our enemies. And, and so um, Galatians 6.10 says, do good to all people, especially those of the faith, which says we're supposed to treat everybody the same way. It certainly should happen among the people of God, but yeah. everyone's supposed to be treated the same way. And so all that the great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then the great, in the parable of the good Samaritan, we're told everyone's a neighbor. Actually, the issue is not who's the neighbor. The issue is I'm supposed to be a good neighbor. And so, um, so all these passages would show the distinctiveness of the Christian ethic and show what the relational heartbeat is supposed to be of the faith is designed to show that even when someone opposes us, we are to treat them in a certain way, in a way that is distinct from the way the world engages with its enemies. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're kind of working through some of these passages that you bring up in, in the book. So creating that theology of cultural engagement, like like you said, maybe the church doesn't really have, starting with Ephesians chapter 6. The second one, as you mentioned, is 1 Peter 3, 13 to 18. Now in your book, you know, to, to remind those who don't, you know, 1 Peter 3, 15 and, 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 so, and 15 and 16a, right, talks about giving a defense for the reason that, of the hope that is in you. Now in your book, you talk about biblical hope is not about prosperity or a trouble-free life. You say it exists in a life that is plugged into God's purpose for creating us and aligned with his reason for making us to begin with. So in our engagement, it is important that we never lose the message of hope in the midst of defense of the gospel and the challenge that comes with the gospel. And so I'm kind of curious, like, how would you uh, go about, you know, it's not just like, what, what does that hope look like? Or how do you bring hope into some of these very difficult and and maybe depressing and and evil circumstances well i like to say that when we share the gospel we need to start from genesis 1 and not genesis 3. and the point that i'm making is is that most people in our world um, are struggling to figure out why they're here they, ha they are not located if you will uh, in like real estate locations everything and so they don't know why they're here. I, I compare the world and the way we've been connected, particularly with the communication revolution, to walking into a bazaar where there are many booths, okay? So it's B-A-Z-A-A-R. It's like a mall, okay? But it, where there are many booths, some of these booths are pretty bizarre. They're, they're not what we're used to. They aren't a part of the world that, as the way we normally think about it. Uh, in some cases, there are all kinds of alternatives out there. And for most people, the choices are overwhelming, and so they don't have a sense of location. Genesis 1 gives us a sense of location. Genesis 1 says that a human being is made in the image of God. We are made for relationship with our Creator, and we are made to cooperate with one another. You know, creation didn't get its promotion from being good to very good until male and female were created alongside one another, and they were designed to work together and to cooperate, to collaborate in such a way that the creation hummed, that the creation flourished, that the creation was aligned. I, I say we're all made to be hummers. We're supposed to make the creation hum. Right. And, and, of course, what Genesis 3 shows is the disruption of that. So it isn't that Genesis 3 is not in the story. But if I don't start with where, with where human beings are and then realize that the gospel is supposed to take me back to that space, then I have left out a key part of the story that is a key part of the hope. Because part of the hope is living out authentically who God made us to be. Right. Uh, and, and so 
the challenge of the gospel is we have the challenge on the one hand, that's the Genesis 3 part, and we have the invitation on the other, which is rooted in Genesis 1 as well as just the hope of the gospel. And sometimes we're so committed to making sure that the challenge is put in front of people that they never hear the good news. They don't, never realize it's called gospel, good news, for a reason. And that's because there is a hope, a significant hope, that's a part of the offer that we need to invite people into. I just don't want us to lose the sense of the fact that we're ultimately about offering people hope and not condemnation. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that is so good, and there is true and lasting hope uh, in the Christian message. And my wife and I were just watching a TV show the other night where they talked about, like, I have no more hope because my career failed or because my athletic career is over and I got injured. It's like, where's, you know, the purpose? Where's the hope? And Christianity really does give that. That is something that we have to provide to this world. Now, along with that, some of the other verses you go into, uh, like, for example, Colossians 4, talking about acting wisely towards outsiders. And then you kind of end with um, 2 Timothy chapter 2 um, about, you know, not quarreling. Now, one of the, and, and I'm kind of curious, I'm going to hopefully draw this all together in a way that makes sense. But one verse uh, that's passage that's not in here uh, is 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the qualifications of an elder or of an overseer. And the last thing here, at least applying to an overseer, is it says in verse 7 in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into di disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And so I guess I'm, what I'm asking and what I'm curious about is some of the passages you cited as well as this one talks about, you know, acting wisely towards outsiders, being well thought of by outsiders. But you often hear Christians say, well, Jesus said you'll be hated by outsiders. And so sometimes we see this like people hate us uh, as a sign I'm doing things right. But then we also see passages in Scripture saying, no, outsiders should think well of you. So how do we reconcile this in our cultural engagement of where people are mad at us because of our stance versus we should, you know, act wisely towards them and gracious towards them to where maybe they think well of us? They may not like us for our ideas or the way in which we present the gospel, but hopefully they will see relationally that we care about them. Yeah. And so I, I really think that one of, the, one of the issues for particularly someone who's theologically conservative is they are more concerned with being right than how they're relating to people. And you need both. Both are important. The fruit of the Spirit, if you actually look at it in detail, is all relational. Um, so the way we, and it's in a section, it's in a section where we're talking about the royal law of love, which is loving your neighbor as yourself. And the application of it comes at the end of a section in which the discussion is about, um, uh, about doing good to all people, especially those who are in the faith. So, so this, there's this ethical, how can I say, there's this ethical perspective that's supposed to uh, drive the Christian. So if I'm being pushed back on because I'm pointing out that sin exists in the world or that there's a debt that we have before God because of sin, uh, then that, I can't do anything about that. That's, that's the message that we have. But I shouldn't be pushed back upon because I'm a jerk. Okay, and I and and and, and I, I treat people insensitively or I don't communicate my care or love for people. And so that would be how I would distinguish between the two kinds of passages that you're talking about and the reaction. Yeah. You have? In fact, even in the first Peter passage, three times it says you're going to be slandered for doing what's right. You know, you're going to suffer for doing good. I call it box principle. Every good deed will get punished. And so. Um, and so that and, and Jesus spent the whole second half of his ministry with his disciples saying, if you follow me, you're going to bear a cross. The world is going to push back. 
but they're going to push back for you against you because you're calling out the need that people have to be restored into relationship with God. Um, but hopefully they're not pushing back because of the way you treat people. Right. Yeah, I think that is so important. Now, lastly, on kind of how you treat people and kind of creating this theology of cultural engagement, uh, you bring up 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I love this passage. It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What are some principles that we as Christians can draw in our theology of cultural engagement from the 2 Corinthians 5 passage? Well, there are several. First, uh, as an ambassador, I recognize that my most important identity is not the nation that I belong to. It's the fact that I'm a Christian and belong to the kingdom of heaven, which means I'm already in a transnational, transracial group. That has a lot to say. Hmm. Second thing that's important is if you're an ambassador in a foreign country, you don't tell people, well, the way you want to find out in my country is just come to the embassy. No, you get to know the people <laughs> of the country that you're living in. So there's an engagement. There's a commitment to engagement. That's the second. Third thing about that passage is notice the tone. We plead with you to be reconciled with God. God's the one who's going to make the judgment. God's the one who's going to uh, show whether someone is accepted or, or his wrath is going to be present. Uh, what we do, we're the messengers. Okay, I like to stay in my pay grade. Okay, So we're the messengers. So we're inviting people into a space that offers an abundant life, that offers a different way to live, that's an alternative to what's going on around them in the world. And we're supposed to offer that space to them and urge them, plead with them to be reconciled. Reconciliation is, we have a ministry of reconciliation is what this text is talking about. So does Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Um, the Second Corinthians passage emphasizes our reconciliation to God. The Ephesians passage emphasizes our reconciliation to one another, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. So there's a reconciliation that happens here, and it's not a privatized faith. It's not just me and my God. Right. God changes my heart so that I can relate to other people well. I can be put back in that Genesis 1 space where I'm collaborating with people around me in such a way that the creation hums and that it does it, that it operates the way it's designed to operate rather than operate out of a place of conflict and division. And so all those things are going into what's going on. So the tone of that Second Corinthians passage um, is extremely important, and it fits the tone of the other passage, the Colossians passage, you know, always be gracious in your speech. Uh, the First Peter 3 passage, uh, give a defense for the hope that's in you, but do so with gentleness and respect. Uh, the Galatians 6 passage, do good to all people, especially those of the faith. The Second Timothy 2 passage that I allude to, 22 to 26, makes the same point about interacting with gentleness and the possibility, I like the way this passage ends, that perhaps God might grant them repentance and they might be released from the grip that Satan has on them. So uh, showing the same picture as the Ephesians 6 passage, which is that this is a spiritual battle. And then the other point about the armor text is our armor is our lived out faith. It's not political ideology. Uh, our, our armor is showing the demonstration of the presence of the Spirit that Ephesians 4 to 6 has been talking about before we get to this passage. It's living not like the Gentiles do. It's living and walking in love. It's walking in unity, those kinds of themes. 
Yeah. Wow. That is so good. So kind of before we jump into the example of Paul, and I love this kind of comparison that you bring up uh, with Paul, kind of, is there any kind of, uh, we've talked about a lot here and you've shared a lot. Is there any kind of final word specifically in a question, not directly that I'm asking, but kind of anything else that comes to mind that we haven't brought up that you think is important for the church to hear in this construction of a theology of cultural engagement? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we need to learn how to be better listeners we need to listen for people who are in a different place than we are for the aspirations that they have that can connect to the gospel. Hmm. And I don't think we do. We need to learn how to get a spiritual GPS reading on someone who's in a different place than we are. Hmm. And what we're listening for is not the places to correct them, but the places where their aspirations connect with what the gospel offers. That means we got to be better listeners. So we need to be, this is James 1, 19 and 20. We got to be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of god unfortunately in our culture it's the exact reverse we're quick to speak okay we're slow to listen and we're quick to anger because we think the anger of god accomplishes my ability to vent and so um so so we really need this ability to listen well and to listen with a certain kind of ear um, that's able to think about building bridges to what it is that God is offering in the gospel. So how would you, what advice would you give to someone in retraining maybe their, their mind? Cause I think for, for many, and I know this is just you know, myself, it's like often as you listen, you hear things that you recognize are wrong, red flags go up, and then you start thinking about what you would say in response. So how do we move away from this way of thinking of I'm, I'm listening and yes, I'm trying, but I'm also thinking of responses and defenses and arguments to, to truly listening. Are there, are there practical tips you would offer? What I, what I say is, is that um, there's a quick way to tell whether you're a good listener or not. Okay, this is going to be painful. All right. And that is when you hear something you disagree with, are you formulating your rebuttal or are you doing something else? And uh, I tell people, put your doctrinal meter on mute. Okay. I, I don't say put your doctrinal meter away. You can't do that anyway. But put it on mute. The first step that you want to do in a conversation is you want to understand where the other person is coming from and why. Um, and at that point, you're not worried about whether they're right or wrong. You're just trying to understand what's motivating them. Hmm. Uh, and so you put your doctrinal meter on mute, and instead of responding with your rebuttal, you respond with questions that draw the person out on why they're thinking that way. What values do they have? What's underneath? What's driving them to go there? And you're just trying to understand where the person's coming from. And in the midst of surfacing that, you may surface aspirations that are worth pursuing in the direction of the gospel. You also probably will hear things that you don't agree with. But if you can find those other things that are aspirational that connect to the gospel, then you're actually in a better place to have a better conversation down the road. So and you need to distinguish between the effort to understand where someone's coming from and don't confuse that with accepting where they're coming from. Those are two different steps. Right. two different things. So oftentimes what I say is sometimes the best response to something that you hear is a question. It can be a question about why you think that or whatever, or it can be something that you're actually taught in marital therapy, which is, let me put this in different words um, and see if I get what you're saying to me to see if I'm hearing you correctly. Right. And let them affirm whether you've understood what it is that they've said. Uh, I often tease people that when we talk about this space, they get a twofer. I not only help them with how to engage culturally, I help them with their marriage. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so th this is just a good technique to connect the person. And what that communicates 
is I'm making an effort to listen to you. I am respecting um, engaging with you and your ideas, and you're opening up a, a, a road to go down that hopefully will be reciprocated when it becomes your right. time to speak. And that's when you will apply the stuff that you put on mute in your doctrinal meter, and hopefully you've built enough relational rapport that the person will give you the amount of respect that you've given them and listening to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had conversations with people that, 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 that say something to the effect of like, look, my job is just to speak the truth and I'm just gonna get out there to speak. And I don't really care what they have to say. I'm not going to listen to them. I'm just out there to speak. And it's like, why would they listen to you though? If you're not willing to listen to them, like there's, there's that kind of reciprocation as you talked about of like, look, I want to listen to you show that I respect you show that I value what you have to say that then hopefully that is returned and we can actually build that relationship and have a good conversation. Cause I think another ethical principle is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So, I mean, so I, I yeah. think you just violated that by what you, you know, by the example that you've given in the negative example. And yeah, I think yeah. some people for them, some people it's more important to be right than anything else. And, and if you do that in the wrong way, guess what? You're still wrong. If you're right conceptually, but wrong relationally, you're still wrong. And I wonder how much of that is, is driven by kind of the social media world that we live in, where we can just put our thoughts on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, and just assume that people are reading them and being impacted by them. And, you know, it's like, well, I can just say this and yeah, people are seeing it, but it's like maybe the only people that are seeing it are people that already agree with you. And like, what good is this doing to actually bring people in that maybe would disagree? And, and are people actually even reading what you have to say? Yeah, well, that's why I talked about venting earlier. Because, right. you know, when, when you uh, <laughs> social media is called a platform for a reason, but that doesn't mean that a platform is a good place to be. Um, <laughs> and, and so. Um, so again, how we engage, not only what we say, but how we say it is important. And I think that there's something about Jesus. Well, I like to ask this question because sometimes I get this response, but Jesus challenged people. Yeah, he did. Okay. He talked about sin. Yeah, he did. Uh, his message is repent for the kingdom of God is near. Yep. That's what he said. But did you ever notice who Jesus gave the hardest time to? The Pharisees, Pharisees, the religious leaders yeah, who claimed to represent God faithfully, but actually weren't doing so. And who seemed to be drawn to Jesus? Sinners and people on the margins. Why? Because they sensed he had something to say to them and communicated it in a way that showed a sensitivity towards them. And so that's what you're modeling. That's what you're attempting to model is 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 having that kind of engagement. Now, fair enough, the world did push back so much so that he ended up on a cross, okay? And you gotta define winning properly here too, because yeah. winning isn't necessarily the way the world defines it. Jesus won, even though he went to the cross, um, because he was representing the character and the faithfulness of God. Um, John 3.16, I like to say it this way in a truncated way. God so loved the world that he gave. Just stop there. You know, and you know how the rest of it goes. He gave his son, right. but to God so loved the world that he gave. Okay. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to so love the world that we give, we serve. And in doing that and in caring for people, hopefully that's the draw. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus again said, people may see your good works and give thanks to the God is in heaven. You know, so that's, that's what you're trying to do.
Wonderful. I think this is such a good challenge and uh, a building up of a theology of kind of that cultural engagement. Now, in your book, you also then give the example of Paul. And, and I think that this is really interesting because you're, you're looking at two different passages, Romans 1 and Acts chapter 17, that I think maybe most Christians uh, maybe are unaware of how these are connected. So what is the connection uh, between Romans 1 and Acts 17? And then what is the example of Paul in his engagement that you want to bring into this cultural context that we live in? Well, the point I'm making in this chapter is it's one thing when Paul is addressing the church and describing the culture as it is on its own terms. It's another thing when he goes to address someone out of this culture. In fact, the difference is so great that liberals say that can't be the same person. Hmm. And I like to say the moment you do that, you've lost the lesson. Yeah. So, so let's think about this. So in the end of Romans 1, he does two things. First, he describes the nature of the culture. And when I read that passage, I think Paul must be watching my 10 o'clock news. I don't know what time the, the news comes <laughs> on in California, but here it's 10 o'clock uh, in the evening. Uh, Six o'clock will work, too. Um, or you can go to the 24-7 stuff, and then it's all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, he's describing a world that I recognize at the end of Romans 1. Now, the other thing that we do with Romans, and, and, and it can be summarized in a very technical theological term, how you've used the culture. It's, the, it's a very technical term, yuck. Okay, I talk about... <laughs> can you define that for, the, for myself yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, everybody yeah. listening? It's bad. I mean, it, it, it's a mess. Okay, and he's saying as much. Now, what we do is we focus on one thing in that passage. We focus on the same-sex discussion in that passage. There's actually right. a vice list at the end of that passage. And he goes through the vice list, and then he says at the very end, in the plural, he says, people not only do these things, but they encourage others to do the same. Paul's not just talking about one thing. He's talking about anything in that list that disqualifies someone in their walk with God because he's building towards Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, no, I think you just froze. All right, he is calling back in right now. Sorry about that, guys. Let's see if things pop back up. But hey, again, interviewing Dr. Daryl Bach, his book, Cultural Intelligence, Living for God in a Diverse Pluralistic World. Short read, about 140, 135, 25 pages. Really good, good information here. Uh, not only as he said, and we talked about at the beginning, uh, discussing a theology of cultural engagement and, and looking at what does scripture have to say. But now as we're getting into talking about uh, the examples of Paul uh, and then to kind of push forward into other chapters, uh, looking at how to have uh, difficult conversations, how to make difficult conversations better. Chapter four, five short chapters. That's chapter three. Chapter four, what is the purpose of salvation and the biblical interpretation uh, inter imperative of love? And then chapter five, intelligent cultural engagement and the Bible, a second effective way to teach scripture. So um, I thought this was fascinating. This is actually going to be one of my my go to recommendations as far as those who want to engage in conversations. Um, it's mentioned here and there we go. He is back. There we go. I'm back. There we go. Getting ready to move. See if I can get a better signal. Uh, You're there. I was just giving an overview kind of of your book to everyone listening. So yeah, can no I problem. get back to Paul? So, um, so I'm in mid-sentence. I'm talking about yuckology. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, Paul's leading to the idea that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all contribute in ways that make the world dysfunctional. And we need to recognize that. That's our need for the gospel. Okay, so that's how he talks about the culture in abstract. But how does he talk to someone who's a member of this culture? That's Acts 17. And it's important before we get to the speech on Mars Hill in Athens, 
that it says that he walked around and saw the idols and that his spirit was provoked by what he saw, which is a nice way of saying his blood pressure changed. Okay? He wasn't happy with what he was seeing. He's actually in the same mode that he was in in Romans 1 because he was decrying the idolatry that causes us to worship the creature rather than the creator, as Romans 1 says. So how does he begin his message to this audience? By the way, when he's introduced, he's not introduced this way. I'd like to welcome the Apostle Paul, who's the, uh, who is one of the leaders of a new religion that has showed up in the Greco-Roman world that we all love, and so we just want to hear about it. Now, he's viewed as a seed picker, someone who has, who's flitting around from idea to idea, doesn't have any depth, but he speaks to them anyway. And he opens up this way by saying, I see that you're very religious, which is a way of saying, I see you're interested in spiritual things, so let's talk about spiritual things. And he opens the door to them. He connects with an aspiration that they have, okay? And then he walks through it. Now, he also challenges them in the speech because he starts with where he comes from. You really think an idol can do the, all this for you? What makes you think that, okay? So he does challenge them, but right. he does so after having laid a layer of respect on the front end. So the way he engages with someone out of this culture is not in the same tone that he has when he's describing the culture in abstract. And so that's very, very important, and I think that that has a huge lesson for us because sometimes I think we take the Romans 1 tone when we're addressing an Acts 17 audience, and that's not Mm -hmm. what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, and it definitely does provide kind of, again, I think a really helpful way of like, how do we speak truth? Uh, and, And as you mentioned in your book, find common ground. Um, and, and so, um, he, you, you show how Paul does this and kind of how it's important to us. And I, and I like your challenge. You said you challenge your students to often cite contemporary cultural aspirations that align with biblical values. Um, are you able to, to point out movies or songs or lyrics or TV shows that present biblical values? And, and what would you say to the person who says, you know, I, I can't, I, I don't know any cultural, um, aspirations, contemporary things that have biblical values in them. Yeah, and this can be this can be both positive or negative. Okay, so let's be clear about that. I, I joke with people now. All these illustrations will be old, so you you'll have to bear with me. I'm I'm a little <laughs> older than you are. My beard is a different color than yours. There so, is a little bit uh, of white coming in ever since my son yeah, was born. Well, yeah, <laughs> that happens. And so, um, uh, but I, th- when I taught First Corinthians, preach First Corinthians thirteen, I used Tina Turner as my theologian. Okay. Yep. She had a song known as What's Love Got to Do With It? Now, this may, I could say, and the line's pretty simple. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do with it, do with it, do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Hmm. And she's actually expressing the risk that is involved in love, which is absolutely true. Yeah. Love is risky, okay? But, and so she says, is it worth it? That's the question she's asking. Okay. In contrast to the first Corinthians 13 passage, which is making a point about how important and central and how abiding love is, you know, that love is going to remain when it's all said and done and that it, which means it is worth the risk. Right. And and that kind of thing. Or another example is Burt Backrack. Okay. What's it all about Alfie? And he goes through and he said, he wrote myriads of award-winning songs. He said in an interview, these are the lyrics I'm most proud of. 
And the point that he was making in the music was, um, what really counts? What, why are we here? And he lands in a place where love is the only thing that counts, okay, in the end. But he never defines the object of that love or what that love is about. So when I preach that passage on, on kind of, you know, what is, what is salvation for and what is, what, what is God doing with us in the creation, I made the point about we're designed for a certain kind of love. We're designed for a certain kind of love, and I'm back to a theme I mentioned earlier, that locates us, a love that connects us to God on one another and puts us in the position to love those in his image on the other hand. Okay? So here I'm using the culture to do things. So if someone says, I don't understand how to do this or something like that, I say there are three sources to use for this. One is good movies that deal with really deep human themes. And kinds of questions they're asking. The second is lyrics of music that's thoughtful. Okay? And the third is, this will seem odd, commercials. Yeah. Okay? What values are commercials selling to people that show what the values of the world are? So if you want to exegete the culture, those are three places to go that can pretty quickly give you some stuff to think about as you're thinking about engaging with the way people are thinking what they're wrestling with. Yeah, that's so good. And maybe just let me throw out a quick little promo for those who are listening on podcasts or on YouTube. Uh, I recently gave a lecture uh, at a conference uh, titled Redeeming Entertainment Culture, where I use movies, commercials and music and, and bring out the things that it talks about are true, good and beautiful. I'm going to be posting that lecture on YouTube here in the coming weeks. And so you can definitely check that out uh, in the future if that is something you want to kind of get some examples of and and, and whatnot. Now, uh, part of also in your example of Paul, uh, you talk about how you say, importantly, Paul does not begin with citing biblical texts. And then you say, in fact, in Acts chapter 17, nowhere in his speech does he explicitly cite the Bible. And so what is the role, would you say, of our cultural engagement, finding this common ground, as well as making sure that we cite the Bible or preach the gospel or bring in biblical truths? You translate. You, we speak a foreign language to people. I mean, who thinks about propitiation on a regular basis? Uh, I haven't used that word in a sentence at least in a week. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, so, so we have all these categories that we have that are secondhand if you've been a Christian a long time. And you know what they mean. Most of the world doesn't know what they mean. Or if they know what they mean, think about this. Most people who've never darkened the door of a church, their definition of Christianity comes from one of two sources. It either comes from the people that they know who are Christian or it comes from the cultural perception of what Christianity is. How many of you would like the definition of your faith to be sourced in either of those two places? Okay, it's just a good question to ask. So, so what do we do? Uh, so, for example, uh, the term sin, okay? I'm going to talk about translating here for a second. The term sin. But the world doesn't hear the word sin. They hear the word sin, Okay. <laughs> And, and Star Wars theology gets invoked, or maybe Star Trek theology. A phaser shield goes up. Okay? Okay? You're going to talk about sin? Boing. Up goes the phaser shield. I'm going to deflect this as quick as I can. Hmm. If I turn around, on the other hand, and ask them, is your life dysfunctional? Okay? I might get a confession. Hmm. And then I joke. I might get a confession. We may have a Roman Catholic moment. Okay? I get a confession. I get this Roman Catholic moment. And then I say, do you sometimes contribute to that dysfunction? Okay. If I get a yes there, then I turn around and I say, that's what sin is. 
Okay. So, so I work my way and build a bridge by doing some translating work so that a person can pick up on what it is that I'm talking about and why that may or may not matter in a theological discussion, that kind of thing. We need to do more of that work than we tend to. The issue of location that I've talked about earlier is my way of thinking about how do I get a person to think about who they are in this creation and what it means and what it means to even think about the possibility of a creator. We just today, I don't know if you've noticed, but today the, one of the major news stories is the Webb telescope, which is taking pictures of our universe, which is, um, let's say, vast. <laughs> really <Yeah>. big. <laughs> it's a really big space, okay? And, it, and, and there are dark spots and there are all kinds of lights going. And I think about, okay, is this by, does this all just happen by accident? Or is there something or someone behind it? You know, again, thinking about location, which makes that we, it seems that we're very, 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 very small. I mean, I hope you can see that little light between all my fingers there. Okay? You know, very small on the one hand, and yet God cares about us. Yeah. Because if that's not true, think about how alone we are in this vast universe. Most people don't want to contemplate that level of isolation. So, um, so those are my ways of trying to think about how do I translate my faith in a way that a person can connect to and can relate to. And, you know, using the web telescopes, just using a temporary example out of the culture um, to get them to think about uh, who we are as human beings and what it is that we're made to be. Are we just this collection of, of chemicals that happen coincidentally to work? in frame for a while and then you know and then you go gray and then then eventually you know tap out uh is that all there is or is there some rhyme or reason to any of this most people have an innate sense that there's got to be something behind why they're here absolutely yeah there's there's and there's this longing for purpose there's longing for justice there's longing exactly. for these things that we can absolutely tap Part into of being made in the image of god absolutely for sure so what would you say then to a person who comes back to that and says well but the Bible says God's word will not return void. And so we just need to speak his word and, and quote Bible verses and it will not return void. Well, I, I, I say, go to God. I'm back in Acts 17. Okay. Paul's using the word of God. Okay. Mm -hmm. But he's not citing Bible verses to do it. He's telling the biblical story. He's, he's opening up a way of seeing the world and getting him to think within the worldview. I like to say it this way. We're used, to, we're used to the church of saying something's true because it's in the Bible, okay? So all we want to do is we want to, the way we want to defend our points is the Bible says it, that's the end of it. You put the imprimatur of the magic book on it, and you're done, okay? But that's not actually what the Bible is. The Bible's actually the reverse, and we need to learn how to communicate in the reverse. And it mean, what I mean by that is this. Something is in the Bible. Something's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. God is revealing. Bible is a place of revelation. It's a place of disclosure. It's disclosing what God has said is the authentic way to live or what's the most beneficial way to live and go about life, etc. So, and the church needs to develop the ability to explain why would God say this this way? What is it that's true about this that I need to grasp? Okay? Not through the appeal of a book, although it's helpful that it's in the book and the book is certainly special. But my point is, to the person for whom the book means nothing, the concepts that are in the book are worth everything and worth explaining. Hmm. 
Yeah. And that's 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 what I think. That's the way I think we need to approach the biblical content. And that's what I think Paul does in Acts 17. He tells us he tells a picture. He gives a picture of the way life is designed to be. And he's asking them to reflect on it. I think that is a, a good um, application and, and, and of that passage and trying to understand how we go about doing this. Now, when you look at kind of what Paul is doing here um, in, in Acts 17, as well as Romans 1, and, and what the early church did, how would you say our, our cultural engagement today is similar or different than that of Paul and the early church? I think the challenge that we have is, um, and this is going to apply in two ways. The challenge that we have is, is that most of the ancient world believed in the immaterial world of the spirit. Yeah. Okay. They believed in spiritual forces. They believed that there were, if there wasn't a God out there, there were gods. Okay. There were unseen forces that are a part of reality that help to make sense out of life. We don't, we don't operate with that much uh, spiritual engagement in large parts of the world. Now, there are other yeah. parts of the world where it's a given. Absolutely. But, uh, but in the West, in particular, we have, we have despiritualized the world, or we've risked despiritualizing the world. You also see a pushback on that, because if you actually look at your movies and look at your literature, there are people wondering, thinking about the supernatural, thinking about ghosts, thinking about the things that are unseen, that, and they tell stories about it all the time, which is yeah. an interesting irony. Um, so so that's, that's the challenge. Here's what that means. For the Christian church, what a lot of people do is, well, we need to go back to, the, to some of the great apologists of the past, you know, uh, Kuiper or Babink or someone like that. But Kuiper and Babink were working in cultures in which there was a Judeo-Christian net wrapped around the culture they were functioning in. Okay. That Judeo-Christian net, for the most part, is gone for us. So yeah. we have the additional challenge of how to be Christian in a world in which that net doesn't exist, nor does the ancient world net of a reality about spiritual presence and spiritual beings necessarily exist. So we have a larger task. That's all that I'm saying. And so that's the challenge. I do think, however that the way the church went about it's the secret, which is the church had no social power, they had no cultural power, they had no political power. The only power they had was spiritual power, and they managed to make it work. And that's yeah. what we've got to get back to. Yeah, I think that is important is, is, you know, recognizing again, like I love how you pointed that out in the book of, of when Paul's going in to Athens, like there's not an understanding of scripture that they have of, of those texts. And so he's not having they don't that even know what point. Genesis is. Yeah. What is Genesis? <laughs> what is Genesis? Huh? Yeah, you they know, did have gods, but definitely in a different place. Yeah, how do you speak to someone who doesn't know schmatz about the Bible, and schmatz is a technical term, you know? Uh, <laughs> I might and, have to go so, back and have another show uh, defining and working through all these technical terms. <laughs> exactly right. Well, schmatz and yuck, I've given you two of them. That's more than Sesame Street gives you. They only do one a day. So, <laughs> so what, what then, like, and I want to, man, we only got about uh, – eight to 12 minutes left or so uh, what do you see as some of the most maybe troublesome areas of cultural engagement within the church well there are three types of issues in the public square and i think it's important to identify them and not mis misidentify them uh, one of them is where there's a legitimate pure pure worldview clash okay and abortion and same-sex discussions are 
the two people are coming from such different places that the amount of common ground to discover is pretty thin. Yeah. And that's a hard, those are hard conversations from the get go because they're starting from such different places. The second category is shared goal, different path to get there. So if I say racial reconciliation and I ask most people, should the races be reconciled with one another? Should we live at peace? Most people will say yes. Yes. The second question. So how do we get there? Now you're into your conversation. Yeah. But at least you share the goal. Okay. So that's a different category than the first. The third is where I think most of our political issues are. And because we put the third category in the first category, we create problems for ourselves. So here's the third category. Third category is there are biblical value. Our world is dysfunctional. We live in a fallen world. So there are biblical values that collide because they're not aligned. Okay. What our political parties ask us to do is choose one value and negate or neutralize the other. When in fact, what we need to do is to ask, how do these align with one another? They're not in alignment. What would make them in alignment? Okay. And we rob ourselves of the public discussion that we need because we're not interested in aligning the values. We're interested in choosing between them. We make a binary out of something that shouldn't be put in a binary. Uh, and almost all our political issues fall into that third category. But the mistake that we make is we make them worldview issues and we put them in the first category. And so we never enter into the conversation we need to have. Um, and so, so yes, there are difficult areas in the culture. I think we, I think we've made, we've made more discussions more difficult than they need to be. It's one point that I'm trying to make out of saying it that way. Yeah. And the second is there are a few that really are worldview clashes and it's going to be hard to get those elements to align to one another in those couple of areas. Yeah. So one of the example that you give for that third uh, category of the biblical values kind of coming into conflict would be immigration. So can you just kind of maybe briefly walk through that of what that looks like and, and what yeah, you're talking so about there? On the one hand, on the one hand, a culture has the right to choose what kind of culture it wants to be. It has the law. It has the um, it has the value of wanting to expect its laws to be followed. Uh, those kinds of things. Uh, so yeah. So that's that's one element. The other element is the Christian value of having compassion on people who are coming from a different place or space and looking for a different kind of life for a different kind of reason. And then the complicating factor in this one is, is that for decades, even though we had certain laws internally, we didn't enforce them. We actually encouraged people to come here, whether legally or illegally. We didn't enforce our laws. We protected people who came because we wanted them to do the jobs that we wouldn't do that kind of thing. Uh, and so, so how do you deal with that? Well, you recognize all those factors. You recognize, yes, there should be an element in your policy that establishes how to deal compassionately with people who want to come here and seek a better life. Yes, you want your laws to be followed. You got to figure out how to do that. But how do you rectify a situation in which you have millions of people who are here because we invited them in and didn't follow our laws? Hmm. Um, and, and how do you take the moral responsibility for that? So. That's an example of calibration. You know, how do you, how do you recognize your responsibility for the people who are here, who've had children, by the way, since they've come, who are American citizens, even though their parents may not be, and what do you do if you just deport the whole group of them, and do you take that child back into a culture they've never existed in and can't function in because they don't have the language, et cetera? Is that what you do? Is that the best policy? Those kinds of questions. And I think every one of those, to think about it as a calibration, 
changes the conversation in yeah. terms of how you approach the space and it opens up possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, this is good. And, and this is one thing, I, I again, I, I love this book and why I'm going to add it to my list of recommendations for people because these are often the conversations and the ideas and the principles that we bring into our cultural engagement. We bring into these issues that we're often not thinking through that is r radically, I believe, going to help us in having these conversations. And so, yeah, to this episode, we're not getting into the specific issues. I'm going to do that in a few weeks with Sean McDowell and a new book that he's written. Uh, but this is really those basic principles that we talked about at the very beginning that we need to set kind of in place in order to guide how we go about doing cultural engagement. Now, one other thing that you get into here, and I man, there's just so much good content uh, that, that I want to encourage people to pick up this book, but you talk about just understanding the nature of a conversation. And here you bring up three different levels, so to speak. You bring up facts, filters, and identity. So what are these three different levels and, and how do they go about helping us understand what a conversation is and then having better conversations? Yeah, I have a term for this. I call it triphonics. It's a three-level conversation, and all the channels are broadcasting at once. And we tend to think that the, that the controller in the conversation is the topic that we're discussing. It's actually rarely the case. Actually, what's going on are the filters that are being used to read what's in front of us and the way our identity is connected. So let me walk through this carefully. So there's the topic that you have. Then there's the filter that you use to see what's in front of you, interpret what's in front of you. The trouble is people have different filters. Yeah. All I have to do to explain that second level is to go CNN and Fox. Okay. They're looking at the same reality. It's it, the same reality is out there, but how they're reading, it's very different. So different that you wonder if they're living on the same planet. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's what filters do. And then the third is identity. Identity is, what is at stake in the way I see myself that I'm connected to this topic? I actually like to illustrate this this way. Uh, I was born with an ability to multitask. Used to drive my mother crazy. Okay, I would listen to multiple sporting events at the same time, wow. and it was pretty noisy for her. She didn't care about what the sporting events were. <laughs> and so she said, you can't be listening to all that. That's too noisy. Turn one of those things off. And I would go, no, it, this is what's going on in this game. This is what's going on in this game. This is what's going on in this game. Drove her crazy. Okay. My wife married that gift. Okay. So, so now I'm able to multitask or think I'm able to multitask. So I'm in front of a computer screen. And as I'm engaging with the computer screen, she's talking to me only. I'm not looking at her. I'm looking at my screen. And when she talks to me, she says, you're not listening to me. Now I'm now that's the, called the moment of this hour of decision. Okay, I've got a choice. Okay, I can show that I'm able to multitask. I can parrot back to her almost word for word uh, what she has said to me. Okay, I can do that. Okay, I can tell you it doesn't go very well when I do it. Okay, um, because there's actually something going on at the identity level for both of us, and they're two different things. When she says you're not listening to me, she's just accused me of being a bad husband. So I want to show her, no, I'm, I, I heard what you said, okay? I'm not as bad a husband as you think, okay? <laughs> but what's going on with her is something else. What's going on with her is you don't care enough about me to give me your undivided attention, okay? That's more important to you than I am. That's actually what she's saying to me. What's driving that conversation is not whether I'm listening or not, at least in one sense, which driving that conversation is the way her identity and my identity are colliding in that conversation. Okay. That's actually what goes on in many conversations. There's something at stake for the person. The more I work with this, the more the identity element of this 
becomes important. There's something at stake in the way I'm seeing this that's defining the way I am reacting to what is being talked about. So the surface level is actually the frosting on the cake. What's driving the conversation is the chocolate or vanilla that's in the base of the cake. And that's related to my identity and the lenses that I see that will allow me to accept or not accept certain things that are being said, which is why attaining understanding is important because understanding helps you understand the lenses that people are using and sometimes the identity that they're looking through it with. Well, and it's just like what you said earlier that this will be lessons on how to engage the culture and it's practical marriage marriage advice to exactly one. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, listen to your wife when she says pay attention to her. It was it was this section of your book that I actually stopped and I read it to my wife uh, and, and I just thought it was so good. And I just want to kind of maybe finish with this point and ask you one more question is as you talk about. Uh, and I just want to read this section I think is so good. It says, consider what is happening as we engage in difficult topics, especially if you're like me, you're formulating responses in reaction to what is being said, even as you're listening. Often those responses are in defense of your position. The one element that tends to be missing in the mode of conversation is curiosity and deep considerations about what is driving the other person to express themselves as they are. You go on to say, what can help us in these difficult moments? First, when discussions become challenging, become more curious as to why the person thinks differently than you. I think that's huge. I think, I think that's so valuable is, is that does, do you become more curious as conversations get more difficult versus more angry, more defensive, more, I'm going to prove myself right. You're, you're, the difference is between being right and relating to somebody. Yeah. And I think your call is to try and relate to somebody. There is a time to do the assessment. Okay, I don't want anyone to hear that I think you should ditch your convictions. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think that you're one of the points that I make in the book is no, being honest means being honest about where you are and why. Okay, so so you aren't ditching your convictions, but how you frame that conversation is as important as the conversation that you're having. Yeah, and that's really what I'm pushing for. Yeah. So good. Well, we have like two minutes left and, and there's so much more good content here. I wonder if I can just finish with one last question of you. You dive into a lot of different steps that someone can take. And maybe if we can just focus on one or two, uh, but things that people do that destroy and kill conversations and then things that we can do to have better conversations. So if you could kind of summarize those practical steps into a one or two minute summary, what would you kind of give the, the, the listener here, the, the viewer in this last moment to help them have better conversations? Okay. Two things that we do that damage conversations is what I call the yes, but, or the pivot. Okay. Someone brings up something that shows a weakness in the position that you have and you acknowledge it. Maybe some people don't even acknowledge it. And you say, but what about this? It's what about ism. Okay. That's called the pivot. You're taught that in public relations as a leader. If there, someone brings up a topic that you're not interested in, get off that stage as quick as you can and jump to another topic. Okay. That's called the pivot. That actually communicates disrespect to the person. Because they've raised what they have with you because they want to know how you interact with this particular point. So it's disrespectful. Second point, the second one is what I call demonization. This is death by label. And this is an equal opportunity employer. The left and the right both do this. So this is how this works. I call it, also call it the exorcism. L, liberal, okay? Or C, conservative. Or M, Marxist. Or S, socialist. Or F, fundamentalist. You label them, you play taps over them because you don't want to discuss the details of why it is you hold what you hold. 
We do this throughout our culture. It's what 24-7 news is often all about, and it is absolutely worthless in helping us have the conversations we need to have. Yep. So it is a killer when it comes to conversation. What's the reverse? The reverse is owning your own stuff, acknowledging what you contribute that leads to a problem, and it's being non-tribal. It's the willingness to be humble and be non-tribal, to recognize what you need to work on at the same time as you're challenging someone on about what they need to work on. Yeah. Wow. Well, there is so much more that could be discussed. And for that, go pick up this book. But thank you, Dr. Bach, for taking this time and having this uh, such important conversation with us today. My pleasure. Guys, I'm not joking when I say this is amazing and it's going to be one of my top recommendations. Go get it. Check it out. All the information is down below as well as more information to Dr. Bach, his podcast, The Table Podcast with Dallas Theological Seminary. This is going to be a busy week as well as the following few weeks because next week I'm gone speaking at a summer camp. So I'm giving you two interviews this week. This one today coming up on Thursday is a conversation with Alex McFarland discussing some of the most difficult questions that students ask and how to respond. There'll be no show next week as I will be gone. But then following that are two more episodes, Dr. Mikhail Rosario on a Monday talking about questions about Jesus and then Sean McDowell talking about his new book, The Rebels Manifesto. So a lot of fun stuff coming up and I'd love for you to continue to pray about the different speaking events that and traveling events that I have coming up. So with that. I hope that this has challenged you. I hope that this has encouraged you. If you found this as something of value, please share it and like it, subscribe, uh, get it to other people who need to know how to have better conversations and represent Jesus in this cultural moment. If you want to look through specific issues uh, uh, that are applied to culture and different cultural issues and you want that content, there's other videos that will pop up here. A lot of conversations and interviews that I have done to help you think well about those cultural issues as well as uh, what's going to be coming up. So with that, it's been a pleasure to be with you all today. Thank you for listening, for watching, wherever you are consuming this content. I hope it has been beneficial and I pray that you continue to think well about God, Jesus, and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody, and see you again on Thursday.